Well, if you have your Bible, I know you've turned to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're focused there for a number of months. Our goal is to hit every verse in the book of Ephesians, maybe not in order, but every verse. And today we're in Ephesians 5, and we'll begin reading in verse 6. I want to show you today how we can know what is the truth, how we can know the difference between right and wrong. The Bible tells us that. And though that is a difficult question, it is a complex question, a controversial question, I think as we look into Scripture, we're going to discover that the answer is far simpler than many people suspect. And so the culture is asking questions like this, both in and out of the church. The culture is asking, is abortion sin? Is homosexuality natural? Is gay marriage wrong? What about social justice issues? What about gambling or tattoos or piercing or alcohol or drugs or capital punishment or a thousand other questions? How as a church can we answer those questions? Where do we go for truth? Well, let's see if we can discover the answer. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, the Bible says, Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Now, this verse raises the stakes. It raises the stakes on how we know what is true because it says that our eternal destinies may be wrapped up in whether or not we believe the truth or we follow an empty argument, it says. So, very important. Look at verse 7. Therefore, do not become their partners, that is, those who are following these empty arguments, Verse 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so live as children of the light. He says to these Christians in Ephesus, there has been a remarkable change in your life, and it's because you've embraced the truth, and we need to continue then to embrace the truth. Look at verse 9. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. The fruit refers to the result of something and the result of a life focused on the truth, these three things, goodness, righteousness, and truth. Verse 10, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. So everything that we're told, everything that we believe, we should test it. We should see if in fact it is the truth. Look at verse 11. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. So don't follow the lies, but expose the lies. There's a command. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is the light. We should shine the light. We'll learn what that means in a moment. We should shine the light of truth so that people will recognize the lies. Verse 14, the last part of that verse, therefore it is said, get up sleeper and rise up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So how do we know what is the truth? How can we tell the difference between right and wrong? Well, we're going to look back through these verses and find the answer. But before we do that, let me say that this is important for all of us 
But this is especially important for our young people, for those in college, for those in high school, for, for young families. This is important, especially important. And here's why. Your culture rejects the idea that there can be objective, unchanging, discoverable truth. Your culture, for your culture, truth is a personal thing. And I can have my truth and you can have your truth. In your culture, truth is a limited thing and a shifting thing and an ephemeral thing. But you cannot be a Christian and embrace that view of the truth. To be a Christian, part of being a Christian is understanding that some things can be absolutely true. Not true from a certain perspective, not true for certain people, not true at certain times, but some things are just true. You know, there are many religions, false religions in the world, and some of those religions are based on a philosophy or an idea. And that philosophy or that idea can be reinterpreted from time to time and from culture to culture, and it can mean different things. And so in many religions, you can have a truth that changes. In many religions, you can say there is no truth, which is what the younger generation in our culture is saying. But with the Christian faith, listen, our faith is not based on an ideal. It is not based on a philosophy. It is not based on a worldview. Our faith is based on an event. And that event either happened or it didn't happen, right? And that event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if that can't be a truth that we believe and we embrace and that we say it is an absolute certain truth, then we cannot embrace Christianity. The Bible tells us that in so many places. I think about 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read some of that. Paul says, I passed on to you as most important what I also received. He said, this is the most important thing. This is the basis of our faith, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. So I want you to see even before we begin that the Christian faith is based on a truth and it's the truth of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there is no truth, then there can be no Christian faith. Now, understanding how important this is, let's dive back into these verses and let's see how we can live in the truth. Number one, we must reject empty arguments. Look at verse 6. We read it a moment ago. It says, let no one deceive you with empty arguments. Empty arguments. What is that? Well, an empty argument is one that has no value, holds no water. It's an argument that is false. Now, it may seem true. In fact, it says here, don't be deceived. You wouldn't be deceived by something that was crazy. In order to be deceived, it has to be close enough to the truth to fool you, but it is not the truth. He says, don't be deceived by these empty arguments. And so what kind of arguments is he, is he speaking of? I want to give you four or five categories. I want to give you four or five kinds of arguments that we hear today 
that you hear, maybe sometimes that me and you make these arguments, these are empty arguments and shouldn't be the basis for what we know of right and wrong. So let's go through these. Number one, relativism. Relativism is when you say, it seems right to me. Now there are two kinds of relativism is the way I see it. There's speculation, that's what seems right to me. I thought about it, pastor, and it just seems right to me. That's speculation. And then there is satisfaction, it just feels right to me. Pastor, I, I don't know what you're, what you're saying, but I know that this feels right to me, so it must be right. That's relativism. Now, it's relativism in the sense that it is very personal. That I can have my truth because it seems right to me, and you can have your truth because it seems right to you. And I can say, for me, this kind of relationship is right. And you can say, well, this is the way I see it. This is what is right for me. And somebody could say, well, for now, at this point in life, this is what's right for me. Relativism, truth, changes. Now, relativism has, um, has gained in recent years a superpower. And it has gained the superpower because it has united with something that I want to call new tolerance. Do you know the word tolerance? That's a word that has, that has changed. Its meaning has changed in recent years. There was a time when tolerance meant to accept that other viewpoints exist. I believe it one way, somebody else believes it another way. It's a fact that I believe this, it's a fact that they believe that. That is tolerance, accepting that other viewpoints exist. But tolerance doesn't mean that anymore. New tolerance demands that we give equal value to other views, to different views. We're told that we can no longer say I hold this view, you hold that view, and I believe that you and your view are wrong. Now, that's, that's not tolerance, because today tolerance means that while we can have different views, I have to see your view as having equal value to my view. And if I say your view is wrong, then I am intolerant by the new definition. And so you take this relativism, we can all have our own truth, and then you take this tolerance, I can't say that somebody else's truth is wrong, and we have, we have a disaster brewing. Uh, I don't read Dear Abby, in fact I wasn't sure that it was even still a thing, but this uh, old um, newspaper column continues. And somebody sent me the Dear Abby from, I think, two weeks ago. Uh, they thought it would be interesting, and it was. Uh, there was a wife who wrote this uh, to this Abby. She is an advice person. So this uh, wife wrote and said that she was upset because her husband did not want her, their children, to choose a homosexual lifestyle. And she wondered if she should leave her husband because of that. Well, it's interesting. So first of all, Abby calls the man intolerant. We'll come back to that in a moment. 
And then she suggests that maybe he could get some therapy to help him overcome his obvious wrong-headed view. And then she ends her advice with this urgent instruction. For your sake and for the children, get to the core of what's wrong with this man. What dear Abby was essentially saying is you must not tolerate his intolerance. That's what she's saying. He is intolerant. So you shouldn't tolerate that. And if the only thing you can do is to leave the marriage, leave the marriage. Don't tolerate his intolerance. Do you see the irony of that? But if all of us can choose our own truth, then those are the kind of situations we end up with. If you add relativism and the new tolerance, then everyone is right, everything is right, and the only thing that is wrong is saying that someone is wrong. But Paul said about this in 1 Corinthians 3, the wisdom of the world is, the foolishness, is foolishness with God, and that's certainly the case. So truth is not relative, it doesn't change, it's not personal, and it doesn't shift. Now the second category that is that is an empty argument for truth is tradition. Tradition says that's the way I was raised. Now, truth does not come from your personal preference and truth does not come from tradition. I remember when I pastored my very first church a bunch of years ago, rural Mississippi, um, the community was, um, uh, was diverse. And I didn't know any better when I got to the church, uh, still don't know any better, but uh, we just began to reach out to the community. I thought that was my assignment, and that's what we did. And it quickly brought a leadership meeting at the church where I was told in no uncertain terms, black people are not allowed here. And I can remember a couple of... Um, a couple of men in particular, I could call their names uh, right now, uh, a couple of men in particular, educated men, successful, uh, men who were upstanding and respected pillars of the church and the community in every other way, so far as I knew. Those two men said, preacher, this is just how we were raised. So that's the way it's going to be. Well, that's not the way it was. And uh, we continued to reach out. The Lord sent a revival, and uh, it just changed that whole community. In fact, uh, a few years ago, they had me come back as we celebrated as a church how God had um, just impacted that community across racial lines. But the point here of the story is that oftentimes we want to decide what is true and what is false by tradition. Well, that's the way I've always thought it. That's the way I was taught to believe. That, my friend, is not the foundation of truth. Bible says in Colossians 2.8, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition. The next category that is not the truth, it's an empty argument, is popularity. That's the way most people see it. So truth does not depend, church, on the view of the majority. In fact, Jesus said that most of the 
Most of the people are wrong. Isn't that what he said? Most of the people are wrong about the truth because he says narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and few people find it. If we take comfort in our views simply because many other people share our views, then we could be on dangerous ground. The next category, pragmatism, it just works. Sometimes we think things are true because they work. Well, in a in a sense, truth does always work, and a lie never works. But when we think in those terms, we end up with an ends justifies the means kind of thinking. And we get this wrong more often than we get it right because our, our time horizon is too short. Okay, so we evaluate whether or not something works by whether or not it works or seems to work today, not whether it works from the perspective of eternity. And so too often we say, well, this is what we do in my marriage and it works. Or this is the way I've been living for a long time, pastor, and I'm happy. It works, it must be right. And we think because it works in the short term that it's going to work in the long term. And that's just not the case. We don't gain our understanding of right and wrong by whether or not it works because we've not gotten to the end to look back and see if it works. Lots of things work in the short term. If it's cold at your house and the power's gone out, you could set your couch on fire. You ever thought about that? It would work. It would work. You wouldn't be cold. You wouldn't be cold. You'd have plenty of light, plenty of heat for a couple of minutes, and then your house would burn down, right? And you could tell the insurance company, well, it seemed like it worked for a while. It's not right because it works. Those of you who are football fans will know that a couple of weeks ago, an NFL coach got in a little bit of trouble because he was videotaped in a nightclub of some sort uh, with a woman who was not his wife. I uh, can't imagine that all of these well-known famous people just can't get in their heads that everybody in the world is walking around with a video camera these days. But he was not thinking about that, and, and he... Uh, well, he got in a lot of trouble because the video went viral. And uh, so I, I watched his apology. And I imagine a lot of you men watched the apology as well. And the apology was, was interesting. He, he said, I'm sorry. And he said, it was the dumbest thing I've ever done. He said those two things over and over and over. Um, and then he gave the reason it was wrong. And this is what I was interested in. Why was it wrong for this football coach to be in this kind of situation with a woman who was not his wife? Why was it wrong? And here was the reason. He only gave one reason. I listened to it closely. He said it was wrong because it has become a distraction for my football team preparing for next week's game. And then he said a football coach should never be a distraction. Now, I just wanted to come through the computer screen and grab hold of that man and say it's not wrong because it's a distraction. It's wrong because it's wrong. Now, what was he saying? He said it's a problem because it's not working. He said it's a problem because it's causing problems. We might lose a game, that we might have a poor practice. No, it's not wrong because it appears not to work or right because it appears to work. It is right or wrong based on something completely different, which we'll get to in a moment. The next category, desire. This is what I want 
Often we let our hearts and our desires determine the truth. We'll say, I know I should not marry this person, but I know I, I know you think that this is wrong, but I was following my heart. Or as long as everyone consents and it pleases and satisfies me, it can't be wrong. But I'm telling you, it can. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but it, but it ends in death. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful more than anything else, and it is incurable. The worst advice anybody ever gave was follow your heart. We don't need to base our understanding of right and wrong on those kinds of empty arguments. The Bible says in Isaiah 5:20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We must not get this mixed up. We need to know the source of truth. And that's the next point. We should test for truth. You see that in verse 10, short verse, testing everything. Test, test for the truth. Now, truth has a source. And we can look in for truth, and we can let truth be determined by our preference or our desire. We can look out for truth and let it be determined by popularity or pragmatism. Or we can look up for truth and let it be revealed to us from the Lord. That's a word I want you to know today. Revelation, revealed. In the scripture, truth is revealed. For Christians, truth is revealed. God reveals truth to us. How do I know truth? I see what God has revealed. I look at the revelation of God. That's the source of truth. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai for the commandments, he didn't go up there and reason the truth. He didn't go up there and take a an opinion poll to determine the truth. He didn't go up there and perform experiments and test hypotheses to determine the truth. He got up there and received the truth from the Lord. Truth is received. You know, we could debate whether or not the Bible is true or false, and, and that would be another sermon. But as Christians... We believe that God is real, and we believe the Bible is true, and so truth cannot be determined by what seems to me or what most people believe or what has been my experience or here's what my heart says. The truth must be determined by the Bible. The Bible. And when I hear somebody make an argument for right and wrong, and they begin by saying, well, pastor, studies say, or I heard a story or my heart says, I know that we are going down the wrong path. Truth is truth because it has been revealed to us. We are people of the book. And here is what is right. And here is what is wrong. And here is how we test truth. Let me share with you just a few verses that underscore that. John 17, 17. Jesus said, sanctify them by the, by the truth. Your word is truth. He's speaking to the Father. Sanctify them. That, that means to help them to live in the right way. 
That is to know right and wrong. How do we know that? The truth. Your word is truth. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God. That means it is breathed out by God. It comes from the Lord and it is profitable. That means it's true. It's helpful. It's sufficient. It's right. It is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. How do we know the truth? It is in the scripture. The next verse, verse 17 says, says, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, for every good work in every area of life. I learned the moral truth the ethical truth, if you will, from the Word of God. I test it by the Word of God. Now, the second thing I want you to see, not only is truth revealed, but I want you to see quickly that truth is static. I won't say a lot about this, but I think it has to be said, the truth of Scripture is fixed. I'll read just one verse, Jude verse 3. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, listen to this, to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. We're not adding to the Bible. Uh, nobody has a new word from the Lord. You ever listen to somebody preach and they say, I have a new word from the Lord, then I want to give you a new word for the Lord. Get out. <laughs> I mean, run as fast as you can. He doesn't have a new word for the Lord. The faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. This is the truth of God's word. We don't have a new word. When I stand and preach, I don't preach my ideas, my viewpoints, my preferences, my philosophy. I preach the Word of God. And if I preach anything different than the Word of God, then you need to get another preacher before the end of the service. We are people of the book. And the truth is static. Now, the next thing about the truth is that it is effective it just works. We already said that. From the perspective of eternity, truth always works. And it is the first step. Knowing the truth is the first step in living the truth. Now let that sink in. You want to live the truth? You want to live for the Lord? It starts with knowing the truth. Now let's go to number three. If we're going to live in the truth, we have to reject these empty arguments. We have to test Test everything by the word of God. And then finally, we have to speak truth. If you look, we read it a moment ago, verses 11 and 12 and 13. He says to expose the truth with the light. That word expose means to, well, it, it, it's a word that's often translated in the New Testament, rebuke. It's an active word. We need to expose the lies with the truth, with the light from the Lord. Now, I, I, I want to tell you how we do that. How do we expose the darkness? But before I tell you how, one, two, three, here's how, I, I, I want to tell you why it's important. It's important partly because the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3 that we are the pillar and the ground of the truth, 1 Timothy 3. The church, our responsibility is to Give the truth to the world. We're the pillar of the truth. We hold it high. We're the ground of the truth. We defend the truth. This is what we do as a church. The second reason why this is important today is because this is an introduction to next week, if the Lord allows. And next week, as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians, I'm planned to preach on the truth 
of sexuality. What does the Bible say about sexuality? About marriage, about sins associated with sexuality. And we're not going to be graphic next week, and, and uh, we certainly won't embarrass anyone, but, but we'll, we'll, we'll speak the truth next week. Why are we doing that? Well, because of this. It says to expose with the light of the truth the lies of the world. Now, how do we do this? Number one, we need to shine a bold and a bright light. That's how you expose. You see the word light over and over in this passage. Our message must be bold, must be bold. He says to, to expose. To, that's, that is a bold word. Expose, rebuke. It must be bold. Secondly, it must be clear and pure. We must be careful that we don't attach to the truth our preferences. And that's hard to do sometimes. We, we can't take the truth of God's word and then package it in, here's how I was raised and here's how I like to think and here's what life is like in East Texas and the way we look at things, okay? When we speak the truth, we have to speak it unadulterated. Imagine a surgeon operating uh, on you and he or she is in this operating room and all the lights are blue. Now you think that would make it hard to operate or if all the lights were red. So when you change the color of the light, it changes the perception of the truth. And we have to be careful that the truth we speak is the pure white light of the truth from God's word. And our message must be uncompromising. Um, listen, I'm not big into most political conspiracies, but I do believe, I do believe that there is coming a time, and I may share this with my discipleship class tonight, I believe that there is coming a time when the, when the church will pay a price for speaking the truth, uh, when there will be a price to pay here at our church, not some church a long ways away, but our church. I think the time is coming. I think the time is coming when pastors and leaders will pay a price. I think the time is coming when you will pay a price, especially if you uh, work in the professional world. And another sermon, like I said, I, I'm going to share some of that tonight in my class. But, but the time is coming when we will pay a price, and I think it's soon. But we must be prepared that we will not compromise, that we will not let the price dissuade us, that we will not... Let the difficulty or the sacrifice keep us from being bold and from, from not compromising or coloring the truth in any way. We must be willing to stand on the truth and always be the pillar and the ground of the truth that God has given to us. And then we must shine a gospel light. Listen, it, it wouldn't be a faithful message if we didn't end with the last three lines of verse 14. This was a part of a hymn, we believe, it's not a complete Old Testament um, uh, reference. It, it could come from parts of several verses. Most scholars believe this was a hymn. This is something that they would sing, maybe especially at Easter and at baptism times. It says this, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Listen, church, the, the point of shining the light and exposing the lie is not to embarrass someone, it's not to condemn, it's not to harass, it's never to put somebody down. The point is to lead someone to Christ. We have to, we have to point out sin, sure, and we must be bold and clear, 
But the purpose is not just to point out the sin, it is to lead them to Christ. You think about a dark place and, and, and you're helping people escape from danger and you have the only light. You're going to do two things with that light. The first thing you're going to do is to, is to shine it on the danger, right? Because you want everybody to see there's the monster that's coming after us. Whatever the danger is, I'm going to shine the light on the danger, but I'm not going to keep it on the danger. I'm going to shine it on the danger and then I'm going to shine it on the way of escape. Here's where you need to go. And there are too many churches, listen, that are really, really good at shining the light on the danger, but they never shine the light on the way of escape. We certainly need to stand and say this is wrong and this is right and here is why. But we need to be just as quick to shine the light on the way of escape, and that is Jesus Christ. Imagine a blind person trying to get from our welcome center which is to my right in this room, all the way to our summit service, which is to my left and back a ways. I thought about it this morning. If you were to make that journey and you took the shortest route from the Welcome Center to the summit service, you would have to make six different turns and there would be four other times when you could have made a turn, but you shouldn't make a turn. So that's 10 things. It's, it's hard if you see to get from there to there but a blind person trying to make that trip. And so what if we decided we're gonna help that person? So we just go along behind them and we just shout at them. That was a stupid move. I can't believe you missed that turn. How many times are you gonna mess up? Are you crazy? Are you a sinner? You are a horrible turner or judger of turns. And we could just criticize that person. And here's what would happen. We would create confusion and shame and resentment. What we should do is to take their hand and put it on our shoulder and say, walk with me. Listen, church, I want us to be as bold as any church has ever been to stand on the truth. I don't want us to compromise no matter what is the cost, no matter if it offends. Listen, truth offends. Truth offends. That's the nature of truth. But I want us to be known as the church that says, let me take your hand, put it on my shoulder, and walk with me. I think of what, the, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. It's a long passage, but let me, let me read it. It's not on the screens. I thought of this just a few minutes before the service. But I want you, it's a list of sins. I want you to hear this. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? So he says, these sins are serious. He says, don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, no idolaters, no adulterers, no males who have sex with males, no thieves, no greedy people, no drunkards, no verbally abusive people, and no swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's interesting, isn't it? It's clear, straightforward. You can't misunderstand that. And then the next phrase, and some of you used to be like this. You know, that's a sign of a good church. If you could say, and some of you used to be like this. And I know some of you, some of us used to be like that. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. See, our goal is not just to call people sinners. Our goal is that they would know Christ and we could call them Christians.
So here's my invitation to you. All that, that's the message. Here's the invitation. If you don't know Christ, your sin separates you from God and you're hopeless apart from what Christ has done. And I say to you what, what the church of Ephesus must have sung over and over and over. Get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead. Christ will shine on you. If you'll put your faith and trust in Jesus, he will forgive your sins, change your life, and make you a child of God. Head bowed, eyes closed, let me pray. Father, as people respond to your word, give us your wisdom and the conviction of your spirit. Give us the boldness, courage, and strength, the humility to walk with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.